Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up later, you go to college, how much is it going to cost versus what you're going to make at that school in that major? I have some fascinating information to share with you coming up later. Talk right now about something If you have a need to call customer no service at a company, I want to tell you a difference that may be clear to you from particularly two or three years ago when customer no service was at its zenith, is that now there's something that's both great and terrible at the same time. When you call many companies now for customer no service, the person at the other end of the line may have such a great amount of information about you, it would freak you out. They may know everything you've ever bought from that company, what you paid, how much you complain, how profitable you are. I've talked about profitability index scores before where the customer no service agent will see a color that will indicate how profitable you are, which indicates how much they should do for you. If you're somebody who has an ultra-high profitability index, that individual may be able to do more for you in solving a problem than they would do otherwise. But ultimately, the big data that companies have that they have themselves and that they can buy from third-party companies means that you know nothing about them, but they sure may know a lot about you, and it can actually affect what kind of care or treatment you have. If it's a company that has individual stores and you are not a high-volume customer of theirs, you may find going in person gets you better service and a better result than calling on the phone. On the other hand, in reverse, if you're somebody who is an extremely frequent shopper of that particular company, dealing with somebody at customer no service may actually get you a better result. And you'll start to see with these databases that your call will actually be answered quicker if they know your caller ID and they know you have a higher profitability index score. Samantha's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Samantha, you're going to be a pilot. Yeah, I uh, just recently decided I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. (laughs) That wasn't the plan. I went in to talk to the guy because we live near a flight school, and I've always kind of wanted to do it, and I just wanted to learn how to fly a Cessna or something. Um, And he totally sold me on helicopters, got me to take a test flight, and I absolutely loved it. So I was just like, I think I want to do this forever. So now I'm looking into getting some private loans. And we're talking big money. Yes. How much total will it cost you? It'll cost $77,000. Yes. That is some serious money. And is your intention to become a, a professional helicopter pilot now that you've been bitten by the bug? Yeah. Um, so it would take about a year, maybe a year and a half, to become a certified flight instructor. 
and they they just hire people that you know once you get your certification then you can be an instructor at the school and then you work towards your thousand hours once you have a thousand then you can go get the big girl jobs so that's the plan all right so do you have any idea what my first response is going to be uh no well have you ever considered joining the military um becoming a military pilot I'm I'm 35. I don't really want to do that at this point. Okay. And the 77, you don't have really any other way to pay other than borrowing the money? Yeah, not really. We've got about 20 grand. We'd probably feel comfortable putting 15 toward it. All right. So you're hooked by the bug. So let's talk about, I'm going to give you every devil's advocate scenario, okay? Okay. Because... Uh, the easy part is okay you just go borrow the money and then later the hard part is you're gonna have to pay back all that money so that's uh, that's easy and hard so i'm gonna ignore that and i want to talk instead you initially had an interest in being a fixed wing pilot and that would yeah, be substantially cheaper really right? i would have just been happy flying anything last year we were looking into paramotoring like with just a uh, parachute type thing so and then you only need a 20 hour uh what do they yeah. call that kind of pilot there's a 20 hour course you have to take for that i forget what yeah, they call that remember. license yeah but that that's a very inexpensive license right um because with the fixed wing you know doing the training and assessment and all that a number of states not all of them have state school programs where you can learn to fly a single-engine propeller plane, and potentially even multi-engine at state tuition rates at a teensy-tiny fraction of the cost of traditional flight schools. Do you know if there's a state school program in your state? I'm not sure, but I don't know if I would qualify because I've already gone to a four-year university. That would not disqualify you from qualifying for an in-state tuition program that would be available to add in-state tuition for residents of the state, even though you already but have a degree. It wouldn't cover helicopters, though? Just I don't know. I think it would be unusual for one of these programs to cover helicopters, although it's possible. In other words, I'm trying okay. to throw up every objection that you'll look at other possibilities <laughs> first okay. before you take out a loan like that. And I'm happy to throw up objections like that, because if you really do truly have your heart set on becoming a helicopter pilot, ultimately an instructor, and then eventually a job as a professional helicopter pilot, you'll ignore everything I've said, you'll push your way through, you'll borrow the money, and you'll become just that. But I'd like you to look at the other options as well. Okay. And I know I didn't give you the answer you were looking for, but sometimes it's a good idea to look at other possibilities. And um, the, yeah, the, I'll look into it. The initial license you were talking about, I think, is called the light sport license or sport pilot um, license or something like that. And yeah, just, for a helicopter, it's just private pilot, and that one's only about 14000 but you can't really do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you need, if you're going to earn a living at it, you need the commercial license, either with 
uh, fixed-wing aircraft or helicopters. And the good news is that the reservoir, the pool of pilots, is way short. And so there's long-term career opportunity available as a pilot if that is what you really love and want to do. Wayne is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Wayne. Hi, Clark. Thanks for your service and thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. So the stagecoach may be staging a robbery on you. You're worried. (laughs) Well, that is my fear. My 401k plan established to my employer is managed by the stagecoach. You were talking about them and their recent nefarious activity on one of your past shows, and it's got me kind of nervous. So my question is, what is the best way to express my concern to my employer, and what action should I take to protect my investments? Well, let's go back two steps. Does your employer offer a match on the 401k plan that's administered by Wells Fargo? Yes. And how generous is that match? How does it work? Yeah, I believe it's up to 6%. And so they match dollar for dollar, 50 cents to a dollar or whatever? Correct. So you would want to put into the 401k plan, even if it's rotten terrible, up to the match. Okay. And then if the plan turns out to be rotten terrible, and I'm going to tell you how to find out, and then we'll talk about strategy with your employer, beyond that, you can do your own Roth IRA and do it with any of the low-cost providers and put in the limit of $6,000 in your Roth to year into that. What percent of your pay are you putting in right now? I'm currently doing the 6%. Oh, so if you're only doing 6%, you're doing what you should be doing in that plan just to pick up the free money. Right. Now, Wells Fargo is required under newer regulations that if you ask, they have to tell you what you're paying all in for all expenses in the 401k. Okay. Okay. And so I would find out if you really do have a beef that you should go to your employer with. And you want the expenses all in, you'll know you've got a really good plan if the expenses are less than one half of 1% of the money. Okay. If the expenses are beyond 0.75%, then the plan is getting from being good to mediocre and above 0.75, it's moving towards rotten territory. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you recommend just putting in what I need to to get the employee the employer match and put in investing the rest into a Roth IRA. Right, and it, but if the plan turns out to be below half a percent, even though it's a Wells Fargo plan, you can feel okay putting in more than that six percent of your pay. Okay. All right. Now, in terms of making a fuss with your employer, how big a company do you work for? 500 plus. So a smaller plan tends to have higher costs, and so you may be even be above 1% with them. Okay. And so it's not that your employer is doing something that they shouldn't be doing necessarily unless the plan has just crazy high expenses which would be anything well above 1%. Gotcha. And then whoever would be right for you to talk to, uh, you know, just in a conversational kind of way, say, you know, I'm really worried about our 401k being with Wells Fargo because we're paying a lot more than typical, if you find that is the case. 
But if you just okay. want to take care of yourself, put in the 6% and then do the rest on your own with a low-cost company. And you know, Wells Fargo has a special spotlight on it for some abusive practices that have gone on. But with any 401k at a smaller company, regardless of who's administering it, you need to know what you're paying. And if the expenses are too high, you need to dial back only to the employer match. If there is no employer match, don't participate and do your own Roth IRA. Keish joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Keish. Good afternoon. You want to talk about your son. What's going on with him? Well, actually, it's my daughter. Yeah, she's a junior in high school, and we're starting the process for looking for colleges, and you know, that's a daunting task on its own. But uh, we met with a few college advisors, and I want to get your opinion on you know using college advisors. You know, their fees range from $1,000 to $10,000. Uh, is it really worth the fee for a college advisor? People have really diametrically opposed opinions about using the professional college advisors. And I think that the reason the opinions are so across the board is it depends on what it is you're targeting for your daughter. And is your daughter someone who is going to attempt to get into one of the nation's 50 elite universities? Oh, uh, definitely not. It's going to be something uh, in-state. Right now, she really doesn't know what she wants to do or where she wants to go. So we're just kind of you know, doing a broad search right now. Because when you move out of the top 50, it really doesn't seem like it's a necessary thing to spend big money on college guidance. And if your daughter has any special situation, like maybe needing extra academic assistance or something like that, then there would be a need outside the elite 50 colleges to try to get significant guidance from a college counselor. Is she doing fine in school and no special issues for her academically? Correct, yes. So I'm reluctant to encourage you to spend any big amount of money on getting college guidance to pay you know, a guidance professional for her. Is your daughter still pretty much a clean slate on what she wants to study? Absolutely, yes. Right now she's kind of, you know, possibly looking into the arts, uh, definitely not the sciences or technology, but uh, she's kind of, you know, really uh, undecided. So if she's staying in state, it's pretty easy to go immerse at a college. And if she knows people who are already attending one of the state schools she's considering going to, going and visiting with them is a good idea. And depending on her maturity and how, uh, how much you trust people who she might know that are at a school, you could consider having her stay overnight on a weekend and really having a sense of campus life. If that's not comfortable for you, I still see value in your daughter going and visiting, going to classes at a school, uh, seeing what it's like as a freshman somewhere, spending the day on a Saturday or Sunday having a sense of campus life. Because as a practical matter, if she's staying in-state at a state school, how many schools are going to be on her plate anyway to consider? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm probably talking maybe 10 to 20 schools. Wow, that's a lot of in-state institutions. Yeah. I mean, you know, just going to visit a number of them might eliminate quite a few of those. I bet she'll pretty quickly narrow down to somewhere, if she's going in-state, maybe three, four of the state schools that she could really do serious in-depth visits to. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Sure. And, you know, part of what is going to come down to as well is her SAT, ACT scores and her GPA at her school, which of the state schools are likely to be a good fit for her. So you'll be able to narrow it down. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our main website, ClarkDeals.com, is where you go to save money each and every day. So there are certain things we take as a reality that if you go to college, go to get a bachelor's degree, go to get a master's, whatever, that certain fields are going to generate bigger paychecks. And as a general rule, they've historically been in uh, technology, engineering, uh, computer-oriented jobs. Any of those three broad categories lead to big paychecks. But that accounts for a relatively small number of students who study in those categories a lot either don't have aptitude for it or lack of interest. So then the question comes, if you have a a desire to go to college, you have a son or daughter who's headed to college or thinking of grad school, there's this big unknown. If I go to this school and spend this much money, borrow this many dollars, am I going to get a return on those years in school? Well, believe it or not, the federal government now has put together deep data on what the payback is on a particular course of study at a particular school versus others. And by the way, no one school is going to be the best payoff on everything or the worst payoff on everything. That's why the desired area of study becomes so key. And it's fascinating seeing... For individual schools, I'm looking right now at an interactive tool, uh, one of which the Wall Street Journal did adopting from the federal database, and you can pick pretty much any college or university in the United States, pick a specific course of study, and then see what the typical amount borrowed for that degree is and what the typical earnings are. Look where I went to undergraduate school. Wonder how they're going to look. The American University is where I went. Anyway, you can look and see if a degree at American, and I studied political science, what that's going to do in terms of income and the rest of it. So earnings exceed debt. Graduates have a median amount of $23,000 in debt and earn initially $42,900. So, wow, my degree would not even be an upside-down degree today. But this is not just idle chatter. This is so key, particularly if you are facing enormous college costs potentially for a son or daughter 
And the question is, is that degree worth it at the particular schools that your son or daughter is considering? So we have a link to the interactive tool where you can see for each school, each major, and each level of study, undergraduate, graduate, professional, does it pay off? By the way, I'm going to share one of the things about this. School after school for law school, if you have someone who's thinking of becoming a lawyer, maybe you are, there are a lot of law degrees that you're going to be buried in debt and not able to earn enough as a lawyer to cover that debt. Be aware, be wary. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chris. Hey, buddy. How are you? Great. Thank you, Chris. No, thanks for taking the call. Absolutely. A long time. Um, I'll give you what what little bit I have here, and then you ask me the questions I, I, that, that will help you out. I uh, started late in life, and I have a son who just graduated with his bachelor's. And he has decided to go uh, to law school and get his JD and been accepted. So I'm looking at what the possibilities are of helping him fund that. Now, he's working um, the summers, and, and when he was getting his, uh, his bachelor's, he was uh, working at the college and so forth. So he's contributing what he can. My situation is I took an early retirement for some issues that had um, uh, come up with family. So I uh, recently retired, and I have uh, two accounts. Both are IRAs. One is managed that I'm drawing a little bit off of now, and another is annuity that um, I'll be drawing off of as I need to as, as I get a little bit older. So uh, looking at what, I, what little bit I have been able to come up with, I'm thinking about a Stafford loan and then help, trying to help, uh, to help out as I can uh, as he continues through getting his J.D., So as a a graduate student, which is what a law student is, I first need to ask you, how much is tuition at the law school he's been accepted at? Uh, About $20,000. Oh, my goodness, that's fantastic. A year? Uh, Yeah. So the maximum he'd be in the hole for his law degree would be $60,000. Well, then you figure in, it's not local, so it's going to be room and board and, and uh, books and so forth also. So but he can defray, some, he can defray some of that with work in the summer. I mean, there are things that he can do even while he's in law school. He even has the alternative at many state law schools. I should say many. And that's what yeah. it is. He's going to a state law, state law school. Does, does the school he's been accepted at offer a four-year part-time program where he can work instead of a three-year full-time degree. I believe they do. So one thing that saves so much money is if he does the four instead of the three, and he could work easily. A lot of people in the four-year, they they bust their rear ends all the time, but they work full-time and do the four-year law school program. Okay. But okay. at the least do uh, 20 hours a week of work in the four-year program. All right. And my advice in that case for the four-year programs is that that he get any job he can at a law firm. Any job. Okay. His, his part-time work while he's in law school. And already understand the interior culture of a law firm, you know, how things actually function there. And then sure. you greatly reduce the amount borrowed. All the borrowing needs to be in his name, not yours. Right, right. And so if he does 
a graduate, I think it's called a graduate plus loan. Right. It's going to carry a hefty rate of interest. But as long as he's borrowing, you know, somewhere at 50, 60,000, he should be fine. And uh, it's the people going to law schools where they borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars that aren't fine when they finish. Ty is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ty. Hey, Clark. How are you, man? Great. Thank you. So you are part of a young couple, and you're trying to figure some things out. So let's see if I can be of service. All right. Well, first off, thanks for everything you guys do and your team. But some background. So my wife is six years older than I am. She's 31, and I'm 25. We're both full-time pastors, and so there's some interesting things there with just retirement and so we have some student debt and like a small car note and so we're trying to figure out do we hammer out debt first or do we you know start investing money my wife gets like a three percent match and so she does that but that's about all we do currently so this is a tough one and there is no right answer to this the two of you have been called to serve people in a profession that doesn't pay a lot but you're doing what your heart and your faith has drawn you to. And so there's sacrifices with that. And so not making a lot of money and having the benefit of being young, that money put aside for retirement can do so much for you. But the challenge of carrying student loan debt, it is something that doesn't have like a clear, clear answer. So can I ask you some questions about each of your student loan debts. How much do each of you have? So my wife has none, which is awesome. And so then I have approximately like 48000 bucks in student loans. 48000 Yeah. Why did she marry you? What was she thinking? I don't know, man. I don't know. It must have been the beard or something. Man, that's, <laughs> that's an unbalanced situation. Yeah, a little bit. So. so you're 48. What kind of interest rate does it carry? Well, there's a bunch of them. So I still haven't like consolidated them all. So there's some that are super high, like 9%, and some are like 65 or something. So there are like 15 of them, technically, because I never consolidated them yet. And, and are they all private student loans, or are they under there's the federal student? It's a mixture of both. Okay. Let's first, before we get to where your dollars should go overall, let's deal with these 15 student loans. You need to chart them out. And on one ledger, one side of the ledger, put the federal. On the other side, put the private. The federal student loans are a much lower priority for you to get paid off than the private. Even if some of the federal loans carry a higher interest rate than some of the private, the private loans are the priority. And the reason is that under the law, you have any of a variety of options about how you pay federal student loans, and those options do not exist for private. So you would never want to consolidate your federal and your private together. Interesting. Okay. With the private, if you income qualified for doing a refi into a lower rate for those, you would want to do so. Okay. The biggest player in that market is something called Social Finance, SoFi. Yeah, yeah. And have they made any offers to you or solicited you? 
Yeah, we've, we've reached out to them a couple of times or something, but our credit's been frozen, so we didn't do anything until we were going to do it. We knew everything, talking to people like you. So. All right, so once you chart out these, thaw your credit temporarily, run an application through SoFi, and see if there is an opportunity for you with those private loans to do a refi. Okay. You also have an option that I like with private student loans, particularly since you have some at significantly high interest rates, you may, not a will, you may have a chance that doing a loan offering on Prosper Lending Club could get you a lower rate than what you have right now on the private student loans. Okay. If there is no move on, turns out there's no move to refi those at all, here's what I would suggest. On your federal loans, pay minimums only. Okay. And on the private loans, whichever one has the highest interest rate, set the goal of paying as much extra money at it each month as you can. Until you get to uh, much lower interest rates outstanding, you should not worry about saving for the future or retirement. You should okay. only worry about devoting money to the student loans. But then I assume you still keep putting the 3% that's matched. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Without doubt, anything that has a match, you want to pick up that money because that's such a great instant return on your money. But every other effort about the 48 grand needs to be about extinguishing high interest rate debt. And then you will be in a habit of taking money and putting it towards that. When you get it to a point that it's paid off, that's when you really go fully in on saving for retirement. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Debbie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Debbie. How's it going? It's going great. How are you, Clark? Wonderful. Thank you. Debbie, you are of a charitable mind, are you not? A little bit, yes. What's going on? Well, I have five old cell phones that I need to dispose of. I don't want to throw them away because I think somebody could have use of them, but I know there's no real value, so I don't want to sell them. But I'd like to donate them, but I think they may still have some personal information on them. So I want to get rid of them, but do so safely. I don't know how to clear them. I don't think I have power cords or any way to find out what's on the phone to reset them or get rid of whatever information I still have on there. In that case, I wouldn't be comfortable donating an old, old phone that you don't have a way to power up 
and at least do a factory reset. Okay. That would be a risk level that I would not take. You know, okay. and I know that we could hear from security experts that would say that a factory reset is not enough even, but in most cases it will be enough unless there's stuff you've been involved in that would be really valuable espionage kind of stuff. (laughs) Doing a factory reset on a phone that you can get a charge on should be enough. And what happens is if you go, like you go to Best Buy, they have a thing right where you enter where you can recycle phones. And there are a lot of things that if you go to a search engine and you search how to donate cell phones, there are all these organizations that will send you an envelope and you donate. And what they do is they go to a rehabbing outfit that gets the phone back in, uh, evaluates it, if it's in good shape, clean it up. And then depending on the level of the phone, it either is made available in this country or often sold in a third world country where having a really affordable cell phone is the only kind of cell phone someone would ever be able to have. Okay. But with old phones that you cannot figure out a way to charge them and can't clear them, they're best off still gathering dust in a drawer rather than donating. So if I can factory reset them, what do you think was my best bet? Well, the easiest I... the easiest is just if you have a Best Buy near, you just drop them okay. in that recycle bin for phones. Okay. But otherwise, if you, if you want it even to be easier, just do a Google search or DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine you use, and you'll see pretty quickly who you can donate through where they'll send you an envelope and they'll pay for the postage back to get that phone and then rehab it and get it back in somebody's hands. Excellent. Where I've been in the, it's not politically correct to call them third world countries anymore, but that's still what I call them. When I've been in very poor countries, there are people on the corner selling cell phones at the equivalent of just a couple of U.S. dollars to like 10 or $12, and that allows somebody who could not afford to get a phone otherwise to have one, and that's a benefit of you donating a phone. Wow. Okay. It's funny because we think about people buying a case for their phones that might be $30 or $40, and I'm talking about people getting a phone for 2 or 3 or $4. Completely different math. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.